Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. You can find it on page 1001 there in the Pew Bibles. Now, if you just happen to be joining with us, we are, this is our third week now into our study of this letter to the Hebrews. Now, these Hebrews are, are Jewish Christians who are tempted to, to leave Christ and turn back to old rituals, old traditions, old belief systems about God and about man, right? They, and so this letter was written both to encourage them and to exhort them to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. Friends, our hope is not in what we say, what we think that we believe, or, or what we think that we do for God, but our hope is found solely in Jesus Christ, in His supremacy, in, in who He is, and what He Himself alone has done. That is our hope. That is our faith. And so, in our first week, we looked at the first verse and a half, and we saw that God has spoken to us by His Son. There is no greater revelation that God can give of Himself than His Son, the very Word of God made flesh for us. Then last week, we, we dug a little bit deeper into who Jesus was and what He has done by looking more carefully at His nature and His work and his status, to see him more accurately for who he is and what he has done so that we might rest in a superior glory. And this morning, we are going to see that the Son of God is superior to angels. And that might seem a little bit odd as far as like the next thing to cover to us, because maybe you operate on a bit of a sort of an anti-supernatural bent, you know, where you know, the idea of angels seems a bit silly and archaic and, you know, about as probable to you as finding gold at the end of a rainbow. Or, or maybe you just have the wrong concept of what angels are, that you kind of perceive angels to be some chubby baby Cupid-like figures or, you know, precious moment figurines. Or, or maybe you're kind of on the other extreme and like, the idea of angels really excites you, and, and you're just like, I wonder how much angels are like Michael Landon in Highway to Heaven or Nicolas Cage in City of Angels, and you just really want to be touched by an angel, uh, you know? I mean, let's face it, our culture is pretty, uh, pretty engrossed with the idea of angels. Uh, maybe not so much angels like good angels, but fallen angels, certainly. I mean, the horror industry is practically built upon it. Or, or maybe you've had other misconceptions about angels. You wonder, okay, do I have a guardian angel? Or, or when my dearly departed loved ones die, do they become angels and they look out for me? I'm like, there's all sorts of ideas about angels. And, and hopefully we'll be able to, to clarify that as to what they are and, and what they do. But let me just be clear, this passage is not ultimately about angels, but about how Jesus Christ, the one and only begotten Son of God, is superior to angels. And you might be like, okay, well, no, duh. Yeah, I, I believe that. I believe that the Son is superior to angels. But, but friends, let me tell you, this is a lot more relevant than you might think that it is in, in just passing, okay? I want you to think about when you came to hear and understand the gospel. Okay? You guys pictures in your mind of like who shared it, who told you about Jesus, you know, and maybe where you were at and, and maybe even some of what they said. Or, or maybe you think about how you yourself have shared the gospel with other people, right? What, what did you talk about? It always seems like we have a very limited amount of time to get the gospel out there. So when we have this limited amount of time to get the gospel out there, you know what we tend to do? We tend to focus more on what Jesus has done rather than who he is. And we're not doing that intentionally. We're not doing that just purposefully, just like, ah, who he is, it doesn't matter. It just really matters what he's done for us. But, but just given the fact that we've got this limited amount of time, we often focus more on what he has done for us to the neglect of his person, to the neglect of, of who he is. And as a result of focusing more on his work to the neglect of his person, Jesus can be viewed as an awesome, powerful messenger of God, right? He's imparting God's word to us, and, and we, we communicate him as this sacrificial servant who does all of God's will and serves all of God's people. 
And if we're not careful, he can be reduced down to the concept of that's all that he is. He's a powerful messenger. He's a sacrificial servant. That's less than who he is. And there's a real danger there. And the reality is, if you've thought of Jesus as simply a powerful messenger or a sacrificial servant, you know what? That's not too far away from how Hebrews would define what an angel is. And so, the question that all of this has stirred up, stirred up for these Hebrews here in this text and for us, is do we treat Jesus like an angel? Is that how we kind of view him? Here's another reason why this is relevant. Even today, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is the archangel Michael. Now, if you went to their website and you looked it up, you looked up their statement on Jesus Christ, you wouldn't see it. But if you go to the appendix and you look up their statement on the archangel Michael, what you will see is that they believe that Jesus Christ is the archangel Michael. Right? And so this is far more relevant, nearer to us than we might initially think. And if we're going to worship the Son for who He is, if we're going to love Him and adore Him and cherish Him for who He is, to worship Him in spirit and in truth, we must worship Him for who He truly is and not anything lesser. Not simply for what he has done as a, as a messenger of God or a sacrificial servant, but because of who he is. And so what we're going to see this morning from the rest of Hebrews, as we look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, is that unlike angels, the unique Son of God sits enthroned over all until all his enemies are defeated. The unique Son of God sits enthroned over all until all his enemies are defeated. And it is my hope and prayer that we would behold him for truly for who he is so that he might be worshipped and adored rightly as he deserves. So let's turn our attention now to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son in whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. But of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The one and only begotten Son of God is superior to angels. And this passage proves it from Scripture by identifying His unique sonship, His enthronement over all, 
and the fact that he will reign over all of his enemies. And so first, in verses 4 through 6, we see that Jesus is the unique Son of God. Now, it's really easy for us to get hung up on the words of verse 4, right? What, what do you mean? What do you mean that he has become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs? Because when I read that, I, I start to think, okay, that, that seems to say that there was a time where he was inferior to angels until he received this excellent name. But friends, let's not forget what we've already seen, right? Verse 1 God has spoken long ago and many times and in many ways to our fathers by the prophets, pointing forward to his son. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So there's no greater revelation, right? God can reveal no more of himself than he already has in his son, right? That revelation is supreme. In verse 3, we saw his nature. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. God never said that about anyone or anything else. It doesn't say that about angels. We saw his work in verses 2 through 4, which only God could do, right? He created the world. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He has made purification for sins. You and I can't do that. Angels can't do that. Nothing else can do that. Only God can do that. And in those same verses, we saw his status, that he was appointed heir of all things, when was he appointed heir of all things? Well, from before the foundation of the world. He received this name which God, uh, of God which is more excellent than any other, and so the Son is Lord over all. And so then we've got to ask the question, why then has he become as much superior? I mean, what's this business with angels at all? Well, having become as much superior to angels is not about his nature. It's about his unique sonship. You see, two times in Genesis chapter 6 and three times in the book of Job, angels are referred to as sons of God. And so what's, what's unique about this son? How do we know he's any different than the angels? I mean, that's probably what's going on here. What distinguishes this son here in Hebrews 1 from all the other so-called sons of God, whether that be Adam, our first parent, or the people of Israel, or even angels? And it's particularly important at this stage of redemptive history because Colossians 2 talks about how there were people at that time who were tempted to worship angels. Again, we look at this because we, we've got this anti-supernatural bent. We're like, y'all are crazy. But guys, every time you read stories in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament about people's interactions with angels, they're always tempted to worship them, right? Angels are not these cupid little winged, you know, fluttery things. I mean, they're these awesome, powerful beings, right? I mean, think about, like, even, even in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19, the apostle John himself talks about how he was tempted to worship angels. And this is after this angel communicated to him a vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's amazing, right? After, you know, John says, right after he heard, then I heard what, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, or like the roar of many waters, or like a sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so right after the apostle John John received that from this angel. These are the true words of God. What does he do? Chapter 19, verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So even right there, it tells us something about what angels are, right? Fellow servants, right? They testify to Jesus. And so let's, let's not think these guys crazy, right, who, who are tempted to worship angels, because if you and I, we, we saw an angel for what it was, we would be tempted to worship an angel as well. But another reason why this matters to this context, angel, if you study the, the languages, uh, just means messenger, right? 
And the Hebrews believed that angels were servants that mediated the true word of God to the prophets, right? So they served as sort of the middleman, as in-between. So God had a word, say, for Isaiah. God delivered that word through angels to Isaiah so that he received that message. And that's the way it went. And so the law and the religious customs that they were tempted to fall back to, they knew that they had been delivered from angels to the prophets, they, they, they all believe that. But did they really know that about this message of Jesus? Do we know that this was really delivered by angels to us? Was there any stamp from the, the angelic post office to let them know that the gospel of Jesus Christ was truly from God? And a third reason why it was important for them and for us is, as I said, they knew that angels were sometimes referred to as sons of God. They were servants and messengers of God's powerful word, but how did they know whether or not Jesus was any better than any other angel? How did they know for sure that he was not an angel just like any other? So that's what's going on there. And I just kind of wonder if we took an honest look at ourselves just right here, have we ever had any, any thoughts kind of like that? How do I know whether this is from God Right? Am I, am I worshiping him as just this awesome being, sort of misunderstanding who he is? Worshiping him as something that is creature rather than creator? Right? Am I, am I sort of tempted to just kind of put him on the level of a messenger and a servant? And so that's, uh, and so what does the author do then in order to prove that the Son of God is superior to angels? He takes them to the Word of God. He takes them to God's Word that has been spoken by the Father, delivered by angels through the prophets, through the law, through writings, in order to prove that the Son is superior. The author of Hebrews supports verse 4 with at least seven, potentially eight or nine different passages in every section of the Old Testament in order to prove the superiority for the Son. And so even that says something to us. If we truly believe that this is God's word, that God has spoken, take them to it. It doesn't matter what they think or what they believe. Take them to it. Take them to the word of God. Guys, we, we put far too much stock in our own ability to articulate certain truths and not enough trust and assurance in the sufficiency of God's word. And so this author, and again, what I told you last time, this is really a sermon, right? Big, long sermon where he's unpacking the Word of God, pointing to a lot of different passages. So you know why we do what we do here at Redeemer, right? In verse 5, he says that the Son is clearly superior to angels because God never said to angels. And then he quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And that word begotten, it describes a filial relationship, a relationship between father and son. And every time that, that word is used in Scripture, it's always used in reference to Jesus. You won't see the word begotten thrown out there just saying, oh, well, you know, David begot Solomon, right? Or Abraham begot Isaac. It's in reference to how God relates to his son. Now, in this psalm, Psalm 2, this was written about God's anointed king who sits on God's holy hill, Zion, whom nations rage against. But friends, this is no ordinary earthly king because God promises his son in this psalm to make all the nations his heritage and that the ends of the earth, very ends of the earth would become his possession. That this king in Psalm 2 would vanquish everyone and everything that stands against him. And that those who take refuge in the Son will be blessed. And so this anointed one is, is far greater than any earthly king. And then the author of Hebrews immediately mirrors Psalm 2. right? You are my son, I am your father. With another Old Testament passage, this time from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. A very important passage for redemptive history as God makes his covenant with David and he says, I will be to him your son a father and he shall be to me a son. And in this passage, 
God promised David a dominion and a dynasty, but not simply an earthly one. Though it was partially fulfilled in his son Solomon, there's still yet more to come. Because God also says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You and I, we can't go to Jerusalem today and, you know, take a tour of Israel's palace and meet the king of Israel, because there's not one. So how could this be true? Well, God intends to fulfill it and has fulfilled it. This forever house and forever kingdom would be established through a son of David who is God's forever son. Fully man of the line of David and fully God, God's one and only son. And these two passages are speaking ultimately of Christ. And with these two quotes, we have another one of those chiasms that I talked about before, you know, where you've got son, father, father, son. In order to to just really, really emphasize this filial relationship between father and son, this is not a subservient relationship like that of God and angels between masters and servants. This is a relationship, a unique relationship of father to son. And even... Even during Jesus' earthly ministry, God himself spoke from the heavens about Jesus, both at Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration, tearing the heavens open, voice thundering down from the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You do realize that God has said that about no other. No angel, no apostle, No prophet, no king, no priest, no one else, only Jesus. So then you come, okay, well, what's this business here in verse 6 about, again, when he brings his firstborn into the world? Because, you know, you put those things together and it sounds like there was a time that this firstborn son came into being. And I would say, yeah, it does sound like that. But here's the thing. The Old Testament ends with all of these promises like Psalm 2 or like 2 Samuel 7, and no way of knowing how God would fulfill them, much less how God would fulfill them in himself. You see, it's not just that God would fulfill them. God promises to fulfill them in himself. Right? From our human vantage point, it was impossible for us to see how God himself would be the fulfillment of these sun passages in Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 until, until the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Until Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. God was his Father and he was his Son. It was through Christ's incarnation, through his life, through his suffering, through his death, through his resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of God that we now see God as having fulfilled these sonship promises. Do you get that? You guys tracking with me? Kind of like stairs. Just need to know, right? You're hanging with me. Right? God himself fulfilled these sonship passages through his son. And so, though, though the son of God that is preexistent, he entered into a new dimension in the experience of sonship by virtue of his incarnation, by virtue of his taking on flesh, by virtue of his sacrificial death, and by virtue of his subsequent exaltation. And because of that, we now understand how it is that God fulfilled these promises. We now see him for what he is. That It's now through Jesus' life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his exaltation, that we now see that he is indeed superior to all others. We now learn more of who God is as our triune God, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and we're able to grasp even more completely what he has done for us and how he has fulfilled all of his promises in Jesus. Clearly then, he is superior. And he is made known. We see him as superior to angels Because he came into the world. And so is it any wonder then that God himself says at the end of verse 6, let all God's angels worship him. Now this is a quote from the Song of Moses. 
Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, and also possibly uh, Psalm 97, verse 7, in which a command is issued in both. All of you angelic hosts, the host of heaven, worship him. Now, here's the thing about those passages. If you went to Deuteronomy 32 and you went to Psalm 97 and you started looking to, to those passages, you would recognize that the him that he's referring to is God, God the Father. And yet, the author of Hebrews is taking those passages under the inspiration and authority of the Holy Spirit and applying them now to the Son and saying, worship Him, all of you hosts of heaven, all of God's angels, worship Him, worship the Son. It's an amazing, amazing statement. And how could that be? How could that be, guys? When you read through the Old Testament, who alone, are we told over and over again, deserves all glory and all praise and all honor and all worship, right? This is a Sunday school answer. Don't be afraid. God, right? God alone is to be worshiped, right? And yet here in this passage, we see God saying to his angels, worship the Son, right? And that's just what they do. I mean, even, again, before Jesus appeared on the scene, you've got the, the angels appearing to, to Mary and to Joseph, saying, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Or think about the multitude of heavenly host appearing to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem at Jesus' birth where they say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Think about how the angels ministered to Jesus during his earthly ministry. When he was tempted in the wilderness, they came and they ministered to him. When he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane before his suffering and death, they were there to minister to him. Upon his death, it was the angels who rolled the stone away and who communicated to the apostles of his resurrection. And we are told in many, many places in the New Testament that upon Christ's exaltation to the right hand of God, that he was put in a place far above all rule and authority and dominion and power and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. God says that of no other. Jesus is more than some angel because God commands all his angels, including Michael, to worship him. This unique sonship has been established throughout all of God's revelation. The author of Hebrews has just pointed us in these passages to the law, to the prophets, and to the writings. Basically, the Old Testament. And if God commands these great and powerful beings who worship and serve God alone to worship His Son for who He is, how much more should we, who have been made a little lower than His angels, worship Him for who He is? Friends, I've got to ask you, do you worship Christ simply by nature of who He is? is. Have you ever thought about that? You see, not because of what he's done for you, but do you adore him because he is God? God alone, we are told, deserves all glory by nature of who he is, because he and he alone is the perfect, self-existent, self-sufficient Lord and creator of all things, to whom belong all glory and honor and praise and beauty and majesty and excellencies. All of it belongs to him. And Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Do you worship him for that? Or do you perhaps fulfill your obligation because you believe you owe him homage for what he has done for you? Friends, we often, in taking this shortcut, this sort of this tiptoe around his nature to focus on his work, we miss 
who he truly is. And if we miss who he truly is, are we worshiping him in spirit and truth? Right? Are we exchanging who he is as the giver and worshiping him for the gifts? What he has done. A fear that we often lack the capacity to rejoice in his sonship because our focus is really on what he does for us. That's what's happening here in the book of Hebrews, and I think often what happens in his own hearts. Now, guys, if, if, this, if this just hit, hit you upside the head, you know, you're just like, wait a minute, I, I haven't even thought about that. Well, that's good, right? That's evidence of God speaking to you through his word. And so praise God for that, right? And, and the reality is, okay, what do I do? I meditate on these truths. I meditate on what, what the word of God says about the son to rejoice in the person of Jesus, to delight, take delight in the theological truths of who he is. Meditate upon his being. He is the unique Son of God, deserving of all worship, even from angels, because of who He is, and second, because He sits enthroned over all. Now, now don't worry here, I'm going to pick up the pace, right? I've got to establish that, that sonship because, you know, his, his reign is built upon that. But in verse 7, and this is quoting from Psalm 104, verse 4, of the angels, God says, He makes... His angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. Now this doesn't mean that every gust of wind that you feel or every flicker of flame that you see is an angel, right? Everything is not paranormal activity. If that was the case, maybe we, we would have, you know, grounds to, to start a new business. Instead of Ghostbusters, we'd have angel finders, you know. Da, 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 da. Anyway, so, uh, but that's not what he's saying here. No, angels, winds, and flames are all created by God. All serve His sovereign will, and He can utilize them as messengers and as servants whenever and however He pleases. As His creation, they serve His bidding. And that bidding changes depending on the situation, right? I mean, sometimes we've seen throughout Scripture, God speaks through winds. Think about Elijah up on the mountain. Sometimes God speaks through flames, burning bush, Moses. And sometimes God speaks through angels, but not always. Angels are messengers and servants of God. But that is contrasted with the eternal, immutable, sovereign, and creating power of the Son. Right? Now, while angels are like winds and flames of fire, the divine Son is enthroned forever. I mean, look at verses 8 and 9. These are, this is a quotation of Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, and it is, it's also an allusion to Isaiah 61. And again, pay attention to what is happening here. It says, but of the Son, God says, did you get that? Of the Son, God says, your throne, O God. So God says this of His Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. So now it's like reverse, right? We see that though they are one in nature, the Father and Son are distinct in person. The Son submits to and glorifies His Father in all things. Your Father has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so here we see His authority. It's a throne and a scepter. We see the duration of his reign, that it is forever and ever. We see the character of the king, that he is upright, that he loves righteousness, and he hates wickedness. Guys, he hates wickedness. We also see the quality and the superiority of his reign, that God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. And what was a song that was written for the wedding of an Israelite king like Solomon was actually pointing forward to the forever rule of the God's only son. And so before we go any further, I just wonder, is this how you view Christ and his rule? 
right? Do you believe that He is Lord? I don't mean just in theory. I don't mean in lip service. Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord, and then I go and I do whatever, you know, suits me and pleases me. But do you live as though Jesus is Lord? Do you love that He is Lord? Do you submit to His scepter? Does He sit upon the throne of your heart? Do you live with an eternal perspective, right? This says that his reign is forever and ever, right? Is that what, like what you have in view? I mean, we're so inundated with so much to do. We're so busy. We're thinking about today. We're thinking about tomorrow. We're thinking about next week or next month. But do you live with this eternal perspective? That Christ's kingdom is forever. I'm now a part of that kingdom. That's the kingdom that I live for. Or are you maybe subtly trying to carve out your own little kingdom here on earth. Do you view his rule as one of woeful obligation? Do you fear that he's going to treat you unfairly? That you're going to come back at the end of it all and recognize, you know what, he, he wasn't really upright. He didn't really love righteousness. In fact, he kind of delighted in wickedness. Do you honestly think that about Christ? Do you earnestly believe that he is righteous, therefore he loves righteousness, that that because he is righteous, he hates wickedness and will deal with wickedness? Or do you entertain those things? Friends, if you do not believe that Jesus is upright, if you question that in your heart, if you question his righteousness, it's going to be a woeful miserable thing for you to try to serve what you believe to be an evil king. But to obey a righteous king is a delight. See how that changes our perspective. Do you believe that his kingdom is greater than all others? And that the joy that comes from his being anointed with the oil of gladness will overflow to bring joy to your heart as you live in obedience to him. Right? I mean, he's been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all his companions. His kingdom is greater, right? He's glad in God, and I know that if, he, if that's true of him, as I follow him, as I obey him, that gladness will overflow into my heart as well. Maybe not right now, but I know that this is true, and so I'm staying with it. Or, again, is your mentality, I will begrudgingly serve him so that he will serve me. This is far more pertinent than we'd like to admit, right? Angels don't rule, but the Son sits enthroned forever in righteousness and gladness above all. And that's magnified by what he says next in verses 10 through 12 when we see the Son's role in relation to the cosmos. Angels are created beings like the winds and the flames and are part of that created order, right? But the Son of the Son, it says, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. That would mean angels as well. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will in your sovereignty roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are are the same, and your years will have no end. This is from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Again, speaking about God, but being applied by this author to the Son. Just like we saw last week, the Son is the agent of creation who upholds the universe by the word of His power. But this passage goes to even greater lengths to highlight his sovereign rule over creation, right? It goes to greater lengths to show his eternality, that you remain, your years have no end, and his immutability, they will be changed, but you will remain the same. And when you think about this, this sovereignty over all things, this eternality, this foreverness, this, this infinity, right? And, and you think about this immutability, this fact that he never changes. These are attributes of God and yet are being applied to the Son. 
And you do realize that there's no middle ground here. That in taking the Word of God from the Old Testament that is clearly speaking about God and applying it to the Son over here, that is either blasphemous, sacrilegious, false worship. He's wrong for doing it. He deserves to die because he's doing it, or it is the truth. And if that's the truth, then all else is false. There's really, there's no middle way. There's no middle ground. He's either absolutely right, this is from God, and he's doing it according to God's will, and telling us this about the Son, or he's dead wrong. That's what's at stake. And so how do we know? How do we know that what the author of Hebrews is saying here is true? Well, he's already told us, right? Because long ago, at many times and in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets about the Son, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. This is how we know. If God spoke these things of His Son, then we worship Him rightly as the unique Son of God who sits enthroned over all, over the entire cosmos, who is unchanging, who is eternal. Or we have no hope because we are not of the covenant people of Israel and these New Testament words about Christ are not God's Word. Or God didn't speak at all in the Bible as a whole and we are just as lost and damned as everyone else. Those are your options. That's the reality that we all have to face this morning. If this is God's word, says that it is, then Jesus is his son. This eternal, immutable, sovereign, unique son of God who sits enthroned over all. And so he is our only hope of salvation. Or... God didn't speak. But friends, we need not fear here. Because the one true, sovereign, eternal, unchanging God who has laid the foundation of the heavens and the earth has spoken, and he has revealed the everlasting kingdom of his Son. Jesus Christ is far, far more than a messenger or a servant or a prophet, or a teacher. He is all of those things, but much, much more. He is the one who made, he is the one who rules the cosmos in unchanging righteousness and gladness forever and ever, and he offers to us that same kingdom if we would believe in him. Now, just like the Hebrews we're dealing with in this letter, You may be wondering, okay, fine. If the Son is ruling over all, then why are things the way they are? It's a problem of evil, right? If He's ruling, if He's reigning, why does my life stink? Why are bad things happen to good people? Right? Which is why in verses 13 and 14, the unique Son of God sits enthroned over all until third, all His enemies are defeated. Now, this one kind of surprises me, honestly, because without even addressing the first part of Psalm 110, right? This, by the way, is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, right? It's actually quoted five times in Hebrews alone. Uh, He just skips over that whole, the Lord said to my Lord thing, and he jumps right into God's exaltation of his son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See, what he's doing here is he's bringing the whole thing back around to what we saw earlier, that, that Jesus, the Son, sits enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high, right? Like we saw in verse 3 or verse 4, right? And, and when you hear that, guys, don't think of like, okay, now here's, here's a little sort of little kitty throne next to the big daddy throne, right? Because a lot of times I think we think like that. No, no, there's one throne, And though he's sitting at the right hand of his father, he's sitting on the throne of God. Not on his lap like a little boy, but because he's God. 
And that's where he is. He is seated forever, ruler over all, resting from all his work. And the reality is he has dealt the death blow to all of his enemies. Everything that has stood against him, right? Every rule, every dominion, every authority, everything that could be named that stands against him, death, sin, Satan, demons, right? Just evil thoughts, everything that would just stand against him has been defeated. They have been brought under his feet. But though we live between the ages, we're yet to see how that is being fully realized, how that that battle, that, that defeat has worked itself out until he comes again. We live in an overlap between the ages, between this present kingdom and the one that is to come. The kingdom is here because Christ, our King, has come, but He still is yet to come again. And so in the meantime, all of these old world problems are still existing today. But they've been defeated. It's over. The battle has been won. It's like World War II and D-Day was the decisive battle, and yet there were plenty of skirmishes after that. But the loss happened there. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't tell us how God is currently doing that or how long it will take. The reality is he probably doesn't know. That's not the point of this quote. The point of the quote is that the Son is superior because the Son alone has been exalted to the right hand of God. God never said that about angels. God never said that about apostles or prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors. God has said that about His Son. But make no mistake, all of his enemies will be put in subjection to him, clearly, for everyone to see. We are told that there is a day that is coming where every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will indeed confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen. And so what that means for you is that if you are living... As an enemy of Christ, you will be made a footstool. It will happen. He will return to judge the living and the dead, the righteous and the wicked, and nothing will be hidden from his sight. Do you really want to stand as an enemy of Christ? But if by faith in Christ you have been adopted as a child of God, And what that means is that every one of Christ's enemies that plagues you, every one of Christ's enemies that torments you, beats you down, wearies you, causes you to lose hope, will be defeated. Christ will overcome. So keep your eyes on him. But verse 14 does give at least a small hint of how the Lord is doing that now. It's not an exhaustive way in which God is doing that. It's it's only partial, but it says that his angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And this is probably the best biblical definition on what an angel is, not some chubby baby Cupid-like thing, not the souls of your dearly departed loved ones. Angels are ministering spirits created by God to serve God's purposes, sent out by God to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. In other words, the church. And though at times angels have ministered to God's people in rather dramatic fashions, right? Killing thousands at once, right? Opening prison doors to allow for escape. More often than not, these ministering angels will minister to us in the same way that they ministered to Jesus during his earthly ministry. There in the wilderness, in the midst of his temptation, there in the garden as he prayed to do the will of God, providing encouragement from Scripture, reminding us of truth, warning us of dangers, helping us to hope and have comfort in God. Even today, he is sending out his angels in ways that you and I don't know. We might even be entertaining them unaware even now. It's not the point of going kind of 
pulling up people's shirt tails to see whether or not they're an angel, but to know that God is still ministering through these servants for the good of the church. And He's doing that because He loves us so that we might not fall away from Him. But the contrast between these two verses is clear, right? Jesus is sitting as king. Angels are His servants, right? There's only one king, but there are many servant angels. Christ is king over all, including His church, and angels do His bidding for His church. And so the Son is as much superior to angels as the name that He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So just to sum up what we've seen in this passage, Jesus is the Son in a way that no angel ever was, is, or ever could be. Verse 5, Jesus is not an angel. He is to be worshipped by angels. Verse 6, Jesus is not an angel. He is God. Verse 8, Jesus is not an angel. He is the eternal creator of all things. Verses 10 through 12, and Jesus is seated on the throne as king, and angels are dispatched to do the king's bidding. Verses 13 and 14. So let us worship him for who he is. It's not put anything else in creation, whether that be angels or ourselves or anything else that the Lord has made, any one of his gifts before him, right? Let's not exchange our creator for any of his creation, no matter how, how glorious or awesome or powerful we might believe it to be. Let's not mistake Christ for less than what he is, and put him on the level of an angel as a powerful servant or messenger of God. Let's not question who God has revealed himself to be as if we still needed something more, some angelic stamp of approval to know that this is God's word about his son because God has spoken to us by his son. And let's not simply worship him for his work. Because his work is only possible because of who he is. The unique son of God who sits enthroned over all until all his enemies are defeated. Let's pray.